Hey friends, it's Sunday, November 1st, and our teaching text is Ephesians 4. We're going to read verses 1 through 3. Paul says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Uh, Lord, as we reflect on Scripture, uh, would you just make it alive in our hearts? Would you send your Spirit and help us to uh, obey and to be shaped by it? In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, We're going to talk for a few minutes today about living a life worthy of the calling uh, you've received. I found myself fascinated in the last couple of years with the, the person of Abraham Lincoln, and I was transported into his world and just transfixed on him as a person as I read Doris Kearns Goodwin's book, uh, Team of Rivals, this biography she wrote all about uh, Lincoln. Steven Spielberg used that movie, uh, uh, Kearns Goodwin's work, uh, for his movie, Lincoln, starring uh, Daniel Day-Lewis. And Daniel Day-Lewis first turned down the opportunity to be in the film to play the 16th president in part because he knew what a big deal it was going to be to try to portray this person. It was going to take a lot of work and sweat and study. And and this is a person whose portrayal you really don't want to get wrong. A lot of people have done it, but if you're going to engage in it on a scale like this, you want to do a great job. And there was this New York Times article at the time the film came out that chronicled the links that once Daniel Day-Lewis accepted the role uh, that he was he was willing to go to to effectively portray this character, but also talking about other characters that he's portrayed. So this comes from the, the Times article. It says, for the last of the Mohicans, Daniel Day-Lewis taught himself how to build a canoe, how to shoot a flintlock and trap and skin animals. For the opening scene of his movie, My Left Foot, about Christy Brown, an artist with cerebral palsy, he taught himself to put a record on a turntable with his toes. He also insisted on remaining in a wheelchair between takes and being fed by the crew. He learned how to box naturally for his film, The Boxer, in which he portrayed a prize fighter and former member of the Irish Republican Army. And in the process, he broke his nose and damaged his back. To play the gang leader, uh, Bill the Butcher, in Gangs of New York, he took butchering lessons. And to play Abraham Lincoln, he half convinced himself that he was Abraham Lincoln. For each of these uh, portrayals, Daniel Day-Lewis did not start with his own ideas of how such and such a character might be like, but he started with source material, imaginatively trying to enter into the world of the character that he's depicting in film. The Times article said, Mr. Day-Lewis prepared for the part of playing Lincoln not by splitting rails or doing sums on the back of a shovel, but mostly by reading. He started with Miss Goodwin's book, poured over Lincoln's own writing, and finished up with Carl Sandburg's biography of Lincoln. He also spent a lot of time studying the photographs taken toward the end of by Alexander Gardner. Day-Lewis said, I looked at them the way you sometimes look at your own reflection in a mirror and wonder who that person is looking back at you. All told, the article said he spent about a year studying and thinking about Lincoln. There are always practical decisions to be made about any character you're playing, said Day-Lewis, but I always try to find my way toward and into a character in a manner that allows me to think those decisions make themselves. 
Daniel Day-Lewis was widely praised for his portrayal of Lincoln because of the lengths to which he went to be faithful to the historical person of Lincoln. Unsurprisingly, uh, another actor's portrayal of Lincoln was largely overlooked. Benjamin Walker also played Lincoln in a very different kind of movie, Abraham Lincoln, Vampire Hunter, which got a 34% approval on RottenTomatoes.com. It was Daniel Day-Lewis's faithfulness to the historical person of Lincoln, his transformation into Lincoln, that garnered admiration. Benjamin Walker got his own kind of weird cult following, but everyone knew that his depiction was not to be uh, taken seriously. In a similar way, the degree to which one may be admired or esteemed as a Christian is directly tied to the degree to which they conform to a biblical vision of Christian faithfulness. And Paul says here, we're going to repeat this phrase again and again, live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Michael Jordan is praised as one of the greatest basketball players of all time, not because he changed the rules of basketball. He didn't decide that a half-court shot was worth five points. But he's revered precisely because he so excelled within the existing rules of the game. In another way, a person could become a chess master not by playing according to their own rules, but instead by just learning to outmaneuver their opponents in submission to the commonly held rules of the game. They're, they're, they're living into their calling as a basketball player, as a chess master. Yuval Levin, in his book, A Time to Build, which I've quoted before, it's a great book on institutions, explains why so many institutions are less respected today than in the past, near the institution of Congress, of, of the church, etc. Levin explains that the role of institutions is to accomplish some socially important tasks. So think educating the young, making laws, defending the country, helping the poor, serving God, various things various institutions do. And institutions accomplish this task of pursuing their goal, that socially important task, by creating a structure and a process for combining people's efforts. So what this means is uh, the institution gives people a sense of here's what's required of you to help us do what we do, to make progress in accomplishing our common goals. So a person goes to medical school uh, to learn how to be a doctor and to uphold in our country like this is the standard of medical practice. A police officer goes to police academy to become an officer of the law. A person goes to law school to be shaped by that institution to be a trustworthy lawyer. A pastor or a priest might go to seminary or might go through a process of ordination. The role of the institution here is to form people so that they can carry out their tasks successfully, responsibly, and reliably. And if they do what they say they'll do, uh, we trust them. We tend to think highly of that institution because that institution helps the people within it become more trustworthy. They do what they say they're going to do. Uh, an uncommon institution that I think that many of us trust, you might not think of as an institution, is uh, Chick-fil-A. Because pretty much no matter where you go, you're going to have a great experience at Chick-fil-A. And they're going to do it generally better than other people in their sphere of like the fast food world. Is it that Chick-fil-A only hires the best people? Well, perhaps. But more likely it's that as an institution, they know their mission and they've figured out how to form people to help them accomplish that mission. 
They, they know how to form and shape and train people who are able to administer their task, accomplish their mission with excellence and in alignment with their goals and their style. So we generally think, man, Chick-fil-A in many ways is a trustworthy institution. We lose trust or confidence in institutions, however, when we no longer believe that they're forming trustworthy people. When the institution is no longer forming ethical and trustworthy people who are committed and competent enough to accomplishing the goals of the institution. Okay. So earlier this year, I ordered a triple bunk bed for my kiddos. We now have it and it's great, but it was quite a process uh, getting it. I ordered it from this online retailer. And after two months and dozens of calls, only half of my order arrived. Very frustrated. I went ahead and built what I have, but it was only half of it. Um, a dozen calls later, and after like petitioning to speak with three or four or five levels of managers, uh, someone just said to me really plainly, look, you are never going to get the rest of your order. And to get a refund, you have to disassemble and return the stuff that we've already sent you. And I was exceptionally frustrated with him. Upon learning all of this, my very innocent nine-year-old said, I don't think I trust them anymore. The institution was failing to form people and systems to accomplish their mission. And so they lost my trust and also consequently they lost my business. But in order to restore trust in institutions, the people that compose those institutions must take seriously their formation into the caliber of people who can be trusted with the work of the institution according to its highest ideals. And keeping this in mind, I want you to hear again the words of Paul. As a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. As a prisoner of the Lord, that's how he begins. What's the significance of this? Well, Paul is demonstrating in his imprisonment as a Christian, his willingness to be formed by the calling of the institution, if you will, of following Jesus. Paul is a guy who's got skin in the game. He is not opting out of the demands of the institution, if you will, of following Jesus just because it's difficult or inconvenient. Jesus said in Luke 9, 23, if anyone comes after me, they must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. The institution or the rules of the game uh, for following Jesus necessitates self-denial and embracing difficulty. Paul says, as a prisoner of the Lord, as a person who's demonstrating my willingness to be formed by this institution, as someone who's trustworthy to uphold the values of this institution, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Another way of putting this might be, take seriously your formation, your integrity, the shape of your life as one who's been welcomed into this institution, been given this calling to follow Jesus. In other words, Paul says, listen, you were called by Jesus to be part of his family. So give yourself wholly to being shaped by our family values. And then he then gives the rest of the book, Ephesians 4 through 6, to explaining some of what it means to live according to God's family values. But he begins very simply, be humble and gentle, be patient, bear with one another in love, and keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. 
in trying to uphold the institution of the local church, Paul does not say, keep attending worship gatherings, although, of course, he would assume that. But rather, he just says, be mindful of how you treat each other, humbly, gently, patiently. Uh, Treating other people in this way, these are examples of how to live worthily of one's calling as a Christian, but it's just a start. Let's go back to Daniel Day-Lewis. Imagine he's being handed a script of a character he's meant to play. As an actor who takes this calling seriously, he's now tasked with understanding, what is everything I need to know about this person? What do I need to know about their world, their perspective, in order to faithfully portray them on film? As an actor preparing to play Lincoln, he spent a year trying to answer this question. Likewise, in being urged by the Apostle Paul to live a life worthy of the calling we've received, we, as as Christ followers ourselves in Tulsa in the 21st century, must now ask, number one, what is the calling we've received as Christ followers? Second, what constitutes a life worthy or reflective of such a calling? Three, who may I look to as examples of ones who have done it well? And then a fourth question might be, what are the stakes? What's at risk if I don't live a life worthy of such a calling? This is the kind of reflection, a meditative and serious reading of scripture invites of each of us. And I urge those of you who are listening or those of you who are watching, who are motivated and sobered by such an admonition from Paul to prayerfully investigate, identify, ponder, and then with the help of the Holy Spirit and in community to implement the answers to those questions. What is the calling we've received? What constitutes a life worthy of such a calling? Who may I look to as examples of ones who've done it well? And what are the stakes if I don't? In such a reading of scripture uh, invites a person to be shaped or formed by the institution of Christ following. Uh, there was a, a CCM uh, Christian contemporary music star in the, in the 80s and 90s by the name of Rich Mullins, who's written some really great songs and also some really weird lyrics. Uh, but uh, he wrote a song called Creed based on the Apostles' Creed. And he said, I did not make it. No, it is making me. It is the very truth of God and not the invention of any man. I did not make it. No, it is making me. And this is the attitude of one who approaches our calling as followers of Jesus with the kind of humility and seriousness of one who can be trusted. It, 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 uh, It evokes this image of one who's submissive and humble and eager to be shaped, not one who brings presumptions and prejudices and biases. And here's what I am and am not willing to do as a follower of Jesus to the table. No, I did not make it. It, the the story, the inheritance, the person of Jesus that I'm receiving is what's shaping and reordering all of my world, not the other way around. You know, more and more frequently, I'm having conversations, especially with young people, but not just with young people who are losing their faith as we speak because of how they perceive Christians are not living according to our ideals. 
and this is most pronounced right now politically, both on the right and the left, but it's seen in, in our attitude toward uh, people of other ethnicities or, or, or just in being judgmental or mean or stingy or just in our being so completely typical, being just like everyone else except for where we spend and how we spend our Sunday mornings. In Yuval Levin's terms, uh, they're losing faith in the institution of the church or in the institution of the Christian religion or of following Jesus because they no longer believe it's actually forming people who can be trusted to upholding the ideals and the values and the practices of the institution. And when enough trust is lost in an institution, people depart from it which we're seeing in droves as, as churches all around the country and all around the city are, are looking at this gap in anyone between 20 and 40 or, or you know, 18 and 40. Uh, when the institution is no longer forming people who are upholding the ideals of the institution, people lose trust and they depart. Or it can go another direction. They can actually have a destructive bent toward the institution and want to just bring the whole thing down. Much of the cynicism and the anger that we're experiencing toward the church that we're hearing about right now that's being manifested in the decline of the church or uh, people disassociating with the church or wanting to just like have cancel culture uh, like in operation toward the church. Much of that cynicism and anger is tied to our failure to live a life worthy of the calling we've received. It's true on the right and the left and the center everywhere. We're failing to live a life worthy of the calling that we've received. And everywhere you look, we fail to live up to our ideals, to be formed in the way of Jesus. And such a failure and the devastating consequences of such a failure invites from us, not anger, not, but repentance. Not just like wanting to argue them into being faithful, but to be like, cognizant of the, the reasons they've walked away is our own unfaithfulness. That actually we see in their cynicism a glimpse of the idealism that we long since abandoned because we're no longer being shaped by the ideals of our institution. In our case, uh, like being shaped by the calling of Jesus, the calling of the Sermon on the Mount, the calling to live a life worthy of the, of the one who bears the name of Jesus. The Anglican Communion Liturgy has this confession. And this is such a great posture for us. It says, We confess that we've sinned against you in thought and word and deed by what we've done and by what we've left undone. We've not loved you with our whole heart. We've not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. That's a great prayer. That's a great place for a lot of us to live, just embracing in many ways we are reaping what we've sown. But then it goes on to pray this. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. The other night, uh, a friend texted me, and it was this lament, this heavy-hearted lament about the state of Christianity in America, uh, and it was challenging his faith. And I said to him in this text, I said, well, look, if there's good news in this, it's that nominal cultural Christianity is being exposed for what it is to the next generation. 
that will probably scandalize and stigmatize Christianity for a lot of people for a long time. On the other hand, I think it might also produce a new generation who will have no patience for anything less than Sermon on the Mount Christianity. And may it be so among us. As a prisoner of the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. You know, every sermon evokes something, some kind of response. I wonder, do you find yourself being defensive? Do you find yourself going to an explanatory posture? Well, here's why we needed to budge on some of those values. Do you find yourself brokenhearted? find yourself angry? Do you find yourself numb? You're on the edge of walking away because you've seen us not live a life worthy of our calling. Church, I would just, I would just urge you uh, to respond to this with humility. Maybe you'd even pray this prayer. If we confess we've sinned against you in thought and word and deed, what we've done and what we've left undone, we, we repent. Maybe channeling Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter one, you would just repent on behalf of the American church for the ways in which we've blown it. We've not lived according to our ideals. We don't look like the Sermon on the Mount. We're not humble, gentle, bearing with one another in love, keeping the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Maybe on behalf of yourself, your family, our church, Christ church in America, you would just repent and ask God for the sake of your son, Jesus, would you just liberate us and help us to walk in your ways, to delight in your truth. I believe there's a work of pruning that's happening in the American church right now, and it is a gift of God to us. Every branch in me, Jesus said in John 15, that bears no fruit, I prune so that it will bear more fruit. As we hear these words of challenge, may we feel this invitation to repent, to humble ourselves. God says, I uh, resist the proud, but I draw near to the humble. God, would you draw near to us as we learn to tell the truth about ourselves? Free us and give us the gift of of your perspective and help us to be men and women who take seriously our calling, who hold such reverence and esteem for the name of Jesus Christ that we consider carefully the ways that we live, that his name might be honored and not dishonored among our neighbors. Come Holy Spirit, purify Christ church, help us to live even more faithfully. In his name, amen. Love you friends. God bless you. See you around.